Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Have you ever been to prison or realized how close you were to going but never got caught and never went to prison? Well, that's what happened to Jack Gantos, except that he did get caught and he did go to prison. In 1971, for being a crew member on a boat that smuggled a ton of hashish from St. Croix in the Virgin Islands to New York City. He survived prison and in the long run did well. He became a college writing teacher and has written about his prison experience in a book called A Hole in My Life. This book tells the story of what happened in the summer of 1971 when he smuggled that ton of hashish. It tells his court experience, what happened to him in prison, and how those experiences changed his life. I spoke with Jack Gantos from his home near Boston, Massachusetts in December of 2004 and asked him to start by telling us what happened? Well, in all of my life, the book is really about several things. But one of the major elements of this book is that I smuggled a boat of hashish um, to, from the Virgin Islands to New York City when I was young, and I was arrested and spent some time in prison. That's sort of the long and the short of it, and then there are a lot of details within it. Well, tell us some of those details. Um, what led you to make that decision? Uh, obviously, a person uh, 19 or 20, your age then, uh, would know that a ton of hashish is a pretty dangerous enterprise. Yes, and I, I did know that it was a dangerous enterprise, and I wasn't that dangerous a kid. And, in fact, I think really what happened is I felt fairly invulnerable. You know, I had, just to back up a, a little bit, when, when I was in 11th grade, uh, my parents had moved from Florida, South Florida, down to the Caribbean. And so I stayed in South Florida and ran my own life. In 12th grade, I had a job. I paid my own rent in my own apartment. I bought my own clothes, my own food. And um, I did very well. And actually, I thought, you know, that I was a mature young man and that I was making a lot of very uh, certain and wise decisions and that my life was, was going forward. And then I was supposed to go to the University of Florida for uh, writing. I wanted to write books. I was very interested in creative writing. But when I went up to the University of Florida... The creative writing program uh, really didn't kick in until about your junior year, and I wanted to get at it sooner than that. So I kind of didn't go to University of Florida and instead moved down to St. Croix in the Virgin Islands, where my parents were then living. And so at that point, I was still thinking, you know, I'm a great guy. I can figure this out. And, uh, but then I couldn't figure it out. And the part I couldn't figure out was how to make enough money to go to college. We were broke. My family was broke. I was broke. And then this deal came along. A man offered me $10,000 in cash to sail this boat to New York. Did you know him? Have any idea who he was or about his background? Didn't know a thing about him. I just met him through a friend of a friend. 
And uh, I was young, and I think the guy saw that I was young and maybe thought that maybe I was the kind of guy that might, you know, buy this bait. And so when he talked to me privately about it, you know, I knew it was the wrong thing to do, but at the same time, I also knew that I could put a month into this sailing, get $10,000 in cash, and in 1970, $10,000 in cash was four years of private school. And I just thought, go for it. And I said to the guy, count me in. I remember saying it plain as day. Those were your words. Those were my words, count me in. And at the time, I was very excited about it. I thought, I'll do this, you know. And then once we got on that boat, and this guy was very shady. As it turns out, he was a lifelong drug smuggler. He was wanted by Interpol. He was wanted around the world. He was wanted by the American Secret Service for using counterfeit money and, you know, to buy drugs internationally. He was wanted by the British because he was arrested there with a quarter ton of hashish in his Bentley. So there was a lot of attention drawn to this man. No attention was ever drawn to me until I met him, and then I came under the umbrella of that attention. During the sail trip north to New York, was there a fear factor, or were you treated well? There was an incredible fear factor. The guy turned out to be quite a crackpot. He had a pistol on board, which I didn't uh, care for because, uh, one, I didn't have a pistol, and two, you know, I just thought, you know, this guy could shoot me anytime and just push me overboard, and that would be the end of me, you know. In fact, the closer we got to New York, the more paranoid I became because I thought, well, once we're inside of New York City, you know, he's just one bullet away from saving $10,000. So one of the things that he used to do, well, first, he, he was naked almost the entire trip. You know, he'd just walk around like some sort of naked pirate, and he had this gun, and then he'd make me stand on the bow sprint with a tin can on a stick, and he would do target practice, you know, and I could just hear those bullets zipping by right by my head. Choo, choo. And all I could think of was William Burroughs, you know, playing William Tell with his wife in Mexico City <laughs> when he put that glass of water on his wife's head fired and shot her right through the forehead, you know, and I thought that's going to be my fate. So what happened? You made it to New York, and then? Once we made it to New York, you know, we just kind of did everything wrong. First, we pulled up the East River. Well, I, you know, no, he and I didn't know that the East River had a, a rule against any pleasure craft going up. It was all for commercial craft. So we went up there. We could have been pulled over there at any time. And then we couldn't find a dock. We were just looking around for dock space. We had not rented any dock space. And so we ended up out in Flushing. Finally, he met up with his uh, shady drug dealer friends, and we started selling the hash, you know, a lot of it. In pieces uh, of the ton right off the ship? Right off of the ship, or there would be an address that I would have to take it to. So he would pull the car in to New York City, and then um, we also had a shopping cart. I would load up the shopping cart with, say, 50 kilos or 100 kilos, and he would give me a designated place, uh, an apartment or you know a corner, a street corner, where I would meet a dealer. And the money would exchange hands or had exchanged hands in advance, and I would be sort of the delivery man. Well, didn't the stuff reek? <laughs> it reeked entirely. And it was packed in these white duffel bags. And, of course, from the trip, you know, it sort of gotten a little wet occasionally. And, you know, there were green stains running down, and, uh, and it smelled like hashish. I smelled like hashish. 
So how'd the bust come down? Well, we had finally almost sold every bit of the hash. And at that point, we were staying at the Chelsea Hotel. We were off the boat. We had moved the boat over to the 79th Street dock on uh, the Hudson side, had it over there for convenience sake. And then uh, we were in the Chelsea. He went out of the Chelsea Hotel, and he had already given me my 10000 in cash, so I was thinking about taking off anyway. And he went outside, and right at that moment when he entered the lobby, the FBI agents came in. Boom! And they grabbed him. And you could just hear him. They tackled him. He hit the floor. He's screaming and yelling. They're screaming and yelling. Finally, they get him. Now, I'm within earshot of this, but they can't see me. I'm still in the stairwell. When suddenly, Hamilton, who is a pretty clever fellow, sees three other guys come in the front door, and he says to the FBI, here comes the owner of the boat. The FBI let him go for one moment, and they ran over and tackled the other guys, who just happened to be Secret Service agents coming after Hamilton from you know another angle. From Hamilton the... was the owner of the boat. Yes, and they were tracking Hamilton because of all the counterfeit money he had been using. So, so the FBI tackled Secret Service? Yes, and Hamilton ran out the back door of the Chelsea Hotel. So when the agents finally figured out who they were, they ran after him, and I grabbed my duffel bag, and I ran in the other direction. At that point, I ran over to Penn Station, and I grabbed the train, and I went back down to Florida. The whole way down, I kept thinking, well, maybe he won't say anything. Maybe I'll get away with this. Maybe they'll just get him, and he'll keep his mouth shut. Did Hamilton know your real name? Yes. So what happened? Well, there I was in Florida, absolutely paranoid. So I called home. About two days later, I called home to my father in St. Croix. And when my father picked up the telephone, he said, where the heck are you? And I said, what do you mean? He said, our house is surrounded by police. He said, they're reading our mail. They're tapping our phone. He goes, what did you do? And I was like, oh, this has gone bad. And then as it turns out, Hamilton did spill his guts, as did everybody else involved. And they were all looking for me. I was the last guy out of all the drug dealers and smugglers and money handlers involved. I was the last one out there. So my dad said, I've got an attorney for you in New York City. Get your buns up there and turn yourself in, which I did. Well, I want to ask you about the details of that, the trial and the time you spent in prison and some of your retrospection on what happened. But first, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Jack Gantos, the author of A Hole in My Life. In 1970, when Jack was about 19 years old, he was a crew member on a ship that smuggled a ton of hashish from St. Croix in the Virgin Islands to New York City. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Jack, did you have a trial? Did you plead? What happened? Well, once I got my attorney, whose name, oddly enough, it's hard to believe, but it's true, was Alfred E. Newman. I mean, it's <laughs> Al Newman. At that point, our plan was to play ignorant, that I didn't know anything. I was an innocent kid, you know. I was just along on a boat ride. But it didn't turn out that way. This boat had been watched by everybody, the Coast Guard, the Air Force. It had been completely tracked. They had airplane surveillance of us. They had photographs of us with the drugs. They had everything. So when you were delivering from the shopping cart, they had photographed you. They had, they the had photographed it. When I was on the boat off of Cape Hatteras, 
You know, this airplane went by. It was a, it was a Air Force jet. Came by, swooped down over the boat. I was on deck waving to the pilot. You know, they had that photograph, you know. So they had us completely followed. So basically the prosecuting attorney said to me, he said, you know, we just have you. You, you better just plead out. So we did. I pled guilty, threw myself on the mercy of the court, and the judge, I know this is hard to believe, but the judge's name was Croak. And Judge Croak said to me, he said, you did a very bad thing, didn't you? And I just said, yes. And after that, he said, 5010B, and he slammed the gavel down. And I said, 5010B, what is that? And then my attorney said, well, they just gave you the Youth Act. It's zero days to six years maximum. And they took me away. At that point, they took me to a prison in New York City. And it was probably the scariest prison I'd ever been in. It was Dutch Schultz's old liquor warehouse on West Street. It had been completely bricked up. The windows were bricked up. The whole thing was dark inside, artificially lit. And it was filled with cages. And there were a one-man cage, two-man cage. And I was in a 36-man cage, which was about the scariest place I've ever spent three months. Were you physically safe or at risk? I was at risk the moment I arrived. First, I was 19 years old. I weighed about 125 pounds, and I had long shoulder-length hair. And when I came in, all those guys just looked at me like, oh, here comes the fun boy. And then when I went into that tank, that 36-man tank, there were two bunks. One was in the middle on in the dark on the bottom. It was a bottom bunk, and one was in the top corner under a light. And I grabbed the, the one under the light. One of the drug dealers who went in with me at that time got the bottom bunk. That night, he was raped forcibly by many people. And that whole night, I sat on the top of my bunk, kicking out at the hands and faces of men reaching for me. And that's how I spent that first night. Did it ever back off? They started to back off after that, you know, but there was still always that sense that when you went anywhere, you made sure that you were not with bad people that you that you knew in advance or that you were not by yourself, and that there was a guard within earshot. Subsequently, you were sent to Ashland, Kentucky. What was your life like in that federal prison? In Ashland, I actually had a, a little bit of luck. On my first day into Ashland, it's a federal prison, and it's medium security, so usual red brick buildings, sort of dorm buildings, and then a gym, you know, the cafeteria, and then the double row of fences and concertino wire, so a very typical-looking prison. The first time I went in there, they always give you a physical in the hospital, and so on, and they went to take my x-ray because they had to take everybody's x-rays for tuberculosis. They couldn't take my x-ray because the x-ray tech that day was a prisoner, and he had snapped and tried to escape and climb out over those fences. Of course, they caught him. So there was no one to take the x-ray. So at that moment, I just said, you know, I can do that job, which I never had taken an x-ray before, but I knew I was going to have to get some sort of job. It was just good instinct. They gave me a couple books. I figured out how to take the x-rays, and I had to develop them in the back. They had a dark room. And then they gave me a cell in the hospital, my own private cell, which is good. You want your own private cell. Nobody can reach you once they lock that door. 
And that's what I did. I hung out with the doctor, the dentist, the psychologist, and the other medical staff, and pretty much spent my time with the professional side of uh, the prison. That was a little bit more safe. When you were working with the x-rays, you x-rayed other prisoners, what sort of things did you see? You would see the the results of fights, mostly. I x-rayed a lot of hands and a lot of knuckles and a lot of broken fingers. I x-rayed a lot of broken noses. I x-rayed a lot of uh, hairline fractures of the skull and a lot, a very hard x-ray to take, of the hyoid process or the Adam's apple where guys would get grabbed from around the neck and uh, they would have some sort of broken, uh, small broken bones in their neck. You would see the results of, you know, just some bad activities. You know, I was trying at some point to kind of turn the corner while I was in prison because even though I was taking x-rays and felt, well, that, you know, I had a decent job, I didn't feel like I had a decent life. And it wasn't long before I started to feel a little bit hopeless about where I was going because I could reflect on where I had come from. And, you know, it wasn't long before I was thinking, well, I was doing so well. How did I get to where I was? So what happened? The light came on, and I decided that I had to start making some positive improvements here. I had to find some way to to do something with some purpose. And, and this so they, was about six or so months after your time in court, after you pled guilty. Yes. I felt like I'd hit and I was ready to bounce, you know, back up. And so I got back to that whole notion of writing books, that I wanted to write books. And they had a library. And so I went down to the library and I started reading more books. And then I started um, keeping a journal. I wasn't allowed to keep a regular journal because the warden didn't want regular journals because guys had smuggled out their journals and they had a lot of inflammatory things about the prison in it. And so I got a copy of The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky and, and it was a big book and it had a lot of margin space so I could write in the margins and write between the lines and I started writing stories about you know the activities and guys' stories. You know Everybody talks in prison and keeping that up and, and that really was very satisfying to me. I felt like, okay, I'm writing, I'm doing something. Eventually you got out, but that was uh, about 28, 29 years ago. Yeah. Why did you wait until now to write this story? It was a hard story when I first got out. When I got out, I didn't really have a sense of humor about it. And not that the book is just a, a laugh track all the way through, but, but there are some lighter moments. But when I got out, I didn't feel any of those lighter moments. And you were in jail for about 18 months? Yes. You know, I was trying to kind of put it behind me. I really was making an in, in, a gesture to, to, lock, uh, to lock up my own prison experience and, and move on. So I went to college and, uh, you know, wrote books, creative writing. And, and I was, um, the first books I started to write were children's books. Well, of course, you know, you feel a little touchy about being known as the um, ex-con children's book writer, you know, that doesn't go over so well in elementary schools. And so um, I just kind of tucked that away. And I knew it was good material, and I knew I would write about it someday. Um, and then when that someday came a few years back, I, I had a very objective feeling about it. I didn't write it from a point of view of anger. Tell us about that someday. What was the epiphany that occurred when that day came? I think the day came in this way. 
I had been reading some books, books in the field, and they seemed to me to be awfully harsh about people making mistakes. There was a lot of sense that once you made a mistake as a kid or even as an adult, you were somehow tainted and uh, that you could never go back. You could never really recover yourself. And uh, I thought that was a pretty tough message for kids. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to write my story because my story is about making mistakes, but it's also about sort of, you know, redemption as well and, and pulling yourself back together and moving forward and, you know, sort of getting over those mistakes. And it was really that spark. I was really sort of ticked off that people were, were telling teens that, you know, once you make a mistake, that's it for you. But that's just simply not true. You know, you can make a lot of mistakes, and as teens, you do make mistakes. I felt invulnerable when I said, count me in, you know, I'll sail this boat. You know, I didn't think anyone would ever arrest me. I thought I would just get my $10,000 and move on and everything would be fine. But it didn't go in that direction. But that didn't mean my life was over, and it didn't mean that I had to suffer with it for the, for the rest of my days. How do you think your life would have been if you had never said, count me in? I could see two very different paths. Certainly one of them would have been, you know, I, I would have come around to uh, trying to figure out how to get back to college and uh, perhaps writing books and doing what I wanted to do. I mean, I think that I would have come to this point somehow. But I think the count me in, as hard as it is to say this, I think by going through that experience, it really um, it gave me a whole other layer of experience personally, emotionally, and uh, psychologically and how I view myself and view the world. Can you summarize that for us? It's a really hard thing to, to boil down into a nut, but I would say this, that without having that experience, I don't think I would have the insight into the dark side of the human heart that I do have. Can you describe that dark side? There are some people that you meet that you know that have made a mistake. There are some people that you meet that you know are impulsive or just rash. And there are some people that you meet that are really intentionally evil, and they are out to do you harm. When I was young, I never thought those people existed. I never saw those people in my mind. And now I seem to understand the whole range from great human joy to great human destruction. And it has really stretched me out as a person to have insight into other people, to see that where that range is and where they fall within it. Jack, some of your work now is teaching writing in um, the schools, uh, yes. middle school and high school. What do you tell kids about how to resolve issues when you're presented with the opportunity to say, count me in, or hell no, I'm out of here? How do you teach them to evaluate that decision? Well, it's a hard thing, but one of the things that I tell them is that chances are they, they're going to make maybe the wrong decision. And they're going to find themselves having made the wrong decision. And it's at that point when they recognize they've made the wrong decision that they, they had better, at that point, start making the right one. 
If it's too good to be true, it probably is. It probably is. Um, and also that you really have to sit down and look at the consequences. If you, if you can, if you're not impulsive, if you can actually look at the consequences and be a little bit objective about it, you will see that there is, you know, a punishment side to this bad decision. On the other hand, I go into prisons all the time and talk to young men. And uh, they all have to read whole of my life, and I'll come in and I'll speak to them, speak to groups of young men. And we'll talk about not the possibility of, having ma- of making a bad decision, but of having made a bad decision. And then what are the steps you, you take in order to pull it together? What I did, what they can do. And we have very good discussions about that. What are the steps? I always lean very strongly toward education, toward making sure that if they're in prison, that they are getting their GED, or if they have a high school diploma, then to think about taking um, correspondence courses. And then when they get out, to make sure that they have an educational component in their life, whether community college or regular four-year college, and really start getting um, goals that they can reach and to educate themselves, and that ultimately that education is going to be the strongest power base of their lives. Jack Cantos, author of Hole in My Life, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Actually, I read two books lately that I was thinking about. One of them is uh, Paul Auster's The Locked Room, which... I really love this book because the, the narration is so strong and it's so trapping. And I just love a book where the narrator does not allow you to escape from the page, where you can't even allow yourself to drift. And then the other one, and I'm attracted to this book for the same reason, is a book called Notice by Heather Lewis. And again, a narrative voice that is so stalking and so tight that you cannot get out of it. And I like a book that completely consumes you as a reader. Jack Gantos, thanks very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much for having me. Jack Gantos is the author of A Hole in My Life. The books he recommends are The Locked Room by Paul Auster and Notice by Heather Love. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.